which is uh, organizing uh, this seminar together with the Swedish Institute for International Affairs on accountability for grave international crimes through the use of universal jurisdiction. We have a very interesting program uh, ahead of us this morning. The seminar is uh, scheduled to end at 10.30, so we have a good one and a half hours to uh, dig into the impact and uh, challenges attached to um, uh, accountability for grave international crimes. We are initiating the seminar with uh, two brief introductions on the use of universal jurisdiction and on the impact of accountability in societies affected by conflict. These uh, introductions will be followed by a panel discussion between our eminent panelists. Um, and around uh, 10 minutes past 10, we'll open up the floor uh, to questions from the audience. Before uh, I introduce our first speaker, uh, I would like to bring your attention to the fact that this seminar is going to be audio recorded um, and distributed as a podcast on the website of the Swedish Institute for International Affairs website. Uh, that could be good to know if any of you would like to ask a question, because then the question is also part of um, the recording. Uh, and lastly, uh, if any of you are going to be tweeting from this event, uh, I would, uh, we would very much appreciate if you could use the hashtag UIEvent uh, that we use. With that said, uh, I would like to introduce our first speaker today. John Stoffer uh, is the Legal Director and Deputy Executive Director at Civil Rights Defenders. Uh, John also has several years uh, of experience from uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, where he has been working for the OSCE on monitoring war crime trials uh, and on strengthening the rule of law, amongst other things. Welcome, Thank you, John. Aida. And good morning, everyone. Um, <clears throat> I will uh, have a brief introduction uh, focusing uh, and, and trying to frame the discussion that will follow uh, by setting out uh, briefly, at least, uh, kind of the, the legal, the, the judicial framework in place to ensure uh, accountability uh, in relation to grave international crimes, but then also uh, to tell you about some initiatives that are, uh, are going on, uh, some current developments when it comes to uh, accountability for uh, grave international crime. So ideally, of course, uh, international crime, like any crime, uh, should be addressed. Uh, accountability should be ensured at the national level. Uh, but as we all know, that is uh, oftentimes uh, not the case in situations where there are conflicts uh, or where a repressive regime is ruling the country or if we have a, a state that is transitioning uh, from conflict, for example, uh, to a democracy. Judiciaries uh, not seldom are unable to address uh, in a, an objective manner 
these types of crimes, uh, either they are controlled by the government or they lack capacity or they lack uh, objectivity uh, and, and are unable to apply the law in an objective manner. And then to ensure that at least to some extent, uh, accountability can be ensured, different mechanisms are put in place. Uh, as you know, we have international courts, uh, we have the tribunal focusing on, uh, on Yugoslavia that worked for many years. Uh, we have uh, uh, hybrid tribunals in Cambodia, uh, also one envisaged in relation to South Sudan, although it seems uh, not to happen in practice and in near, uh, anytime near. Uh, we also have the ICC that is more permanent uh, and that can address crimes committed in a large number of states, at least in theory. Uh, also, uh, there are a couple of mechanisms established by, by the UN that have the task to collect evidence uh, for future trials uh, in courts around anywhere in the world, actually. Uh, mechanisms focusing on, on uh, Burma uh, and Syria. Uh, so, Mark Klamberg, uh, he will talk more about these and elaborate more about these different mechanisms and, and uh, the opportunities they provide, but also the challenges uh, that exist uh, later on, on uh, in the panel. But in addition to, uh, to these international mechanisms and courts, uh, national judiciaries in other countries than where the crime uh, was actually committed have uh, possibilities and provide opportunities for accountability. So other states can play an important role and need to play an important role. They should take on this task. Uh, to complement other mechanisms to ensure accountability. And this is possible through uh, different forms of extraterritorial jurisdiction. Uh, so that is uh, the exercise of legal power beyond the borders of the country. So for example, Sweden, which would naturally have jurisdiction over its territory. But then in some, under some circumstances, it's also possible to extend that jurisdiction to crimes that were committed elsewhere. For example, when the, when the victims or when the perpetrators were nationals of that country, for example, Sweden. But it's also possible in situations where there is no link between the crime committed uh, and the country that tries or would like to uh, try these, these acts. Uh, and that is often referred to as the universality principle uh, or, the, uh, or as universal jurisdiction. And this is not a new phenomenon. It's, it, it's been codified many times and I think the first time in the Geneva Conventions back in 1949. And it's also been, been used when Adolf Eichmann was tried by, by Israel back in 1961. It was on the basis of the principle of universality. 
uh, and in fact, states also have an obligation to incorporate this uh, possibility into the national legal framework uh, in relation to, to grave crimes, uh, such as uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. And in Sweden, universal jurisdiction is also possible in relation to other serious crime, ordinary crime, like murder. So a large number of states in the world, they have incorporated this uh, principle into the legal framework. Uh, but only a few states have actually taken concrete action to address crime in this way, using this principle. And also quite late in history. And Sweden is one of these countries. Uh, Sweden is one of the countries that has also dedicated significant resources to investigate and prosecute these kinds of crimes. So the, within the police, there is a special unit uh, focusing on, on these crimes. Also within the prosecutor's <coughs> office, there is uh, a specific unit. And uh, having met with, with these units and, and the staff working there, I, I can say that not only do they uh, hold uh, uh, expertise in this field, but they are also extremely dedicated to their task to investigate and, and prosecute these crimes, I, which I think is, is really positive to see. Uh, and Swedish courts, courts have also tried a number of, of, of cases uh, on the basis of universal jurisdiction. So I think it's amounting to around 10 cases where there's been uh, proceedings and, and convictions to date. Um, and, and those cases relate to, to Rwanda, uh, former Yugoslavia, Iraq, and, and Syria. Uh, in relation to Syria, there is also an, an ongoing investigation, uh, a structural investigation that has been running from 2015. So the Swedish authorities, when a large number of refugees arrived uh, to Sweden, realized that many of these people have experienced uh, torture and other grave crimes. And it's important to preserve that evidence. But of course, they also understood that with these refugees came also uh, potential perpetrators or people that might have committed crime back in Syria. So this structural investig investigation was initiated back in 2015. What we're also seeing in relation to Syria specifically is that uh, there is a concerted effort, uh, action taken by civil society to ensure accountability. Uh, and, and this is uh, very interesting. And, and uh, it's not only happening in, in relation to Syria, but in relation to Syria, I think it's, it's, it's broader uh, than it's been in relation to other conflicts. Uh, so uh, Syrian organizations, uh, survivors of, of torture uh, in Syria, and it's an international, so international organizations, they are joining forces. Uh, they are collecting evidence uh, in the form of witness statements, uh, documents, uh, photographs, uh, footage, uh, and other types of, of of um, evidence, and they fight cases 
uh, with authorities around Europe in an effort to try to push jurisdictions, uh, nations to take action, to use universal, uh, universal jurisdiction to contribute uh, to accountability in the context of Syria. Um, and it's also push to try to get European states to use this in a more strategic manner. Uh, because the cases that have been prosecuted so far focus mainly uh, on individuals, perpetrators that are residing in the countries, in the, the different uh, jurisdictions. But what we would like to see is that this tool is also used against perpetrators that are still uh, in Syria, that are still active, enga actively engaging and continuing these types of crimes. So cases have been filed in, in Germany, in France, in Austria, in Norway. And in February this year, uh, civil rights defenders took similar action uh, here in Sweden. So together with the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights, uh, together with three Syrian organizations and together with nine survivors uh, of torture, filed a complaint with the Swedish police targeting uh, high-level responsible persons within the al-Assad regime. Uh, the police report contains uh, is 250 pages of material, so witness statements from these nine people, uh, a large amount of information uh, on the structures within the security apparatus of, of, of Syria, uh, the re reporting structures as well, defining the individuals that are at the top level, uh, the chain of command, and the crimes that uh, this complaint or report to the police concern uh, are uh, crimes against humanity, war crimes, torture, rape, illegal abduction, particularly grave assault. And it targets uh, some 25 high-ranking officials within the regime that are responsible for heading the different uh, intelligence services in Syria including the military forces. So a, a couple of the most well-known persons that we name in, in, in this police report is Ali Mamluk, uh, who is the head of the National Security Bureau, and Jamil Hassan, who is the head of uh, the Air Force Intelligence in Syria. The... Uh, and of course, we don't name publicly all the 25 people that we have in, in the report. Uh, some of them we know are still in Syria, still active. Some of them we don't know where they are. Possibly they are traveling around the world. Uh, so what, what results do we see from, from this action? Uh, well, uh, in Germany, uh, the prosecutor issued an, an international arrest warrant for, for two individuals. Uh, also, France has issued international arrest warrants based on actions taken by civil society. 
Uh, and in Germany, uh, two people were arrested uh, and are now uh, facing trial that will start early next year. So we see some really concrete and, and positive result from, from this kind of work. Uh, concerning the case that we filed in, in Sweden, uh, we haven't come that far yet uh, that we've seen arrest warrants, uh, at least not public ones. And, and we don't know much. Uh, the police and prosecutors are, of course, uh, and as they should be, reluctant to share information uh, about their investigations. Uh, but what we do know is uh, that the information that was provided through our police report was uh, valuable for the Swedish authorities and that it, it contributes with important information in, in kind of the complex jigsaw puzzle that uh, the police and prosecutors are, are trying to lay in order to identify perpetrators, but then also to ensure that there is in enough evidence to actually move forward with investigations and eventually prosecutions. Uh, we also know that uh, several and most of the, uh, the survivors that were behind the, the, the police report, they have been provided with, uh, with formal legal counsel, uh, in Swedish. Um, by by the, the, the state, uh, and they have also been been heard uh, and, and given statements uh, to to the police. So this is of course uh, good signs uh, that things are moving forward, and that this kind of action. Uh, want to see also in the Swedish case is that police and prosecutors initiate uh, investigations focusing on the individuals that we name in, in the report, uh, that this results in arrest warrants for these individuals, and of course in the future that it will also result in, in prosecutions, in, in trials and in convictions. But uh, of course, this kind of action also has other, other impacts, other results. And I, I think that we'll hear more about that from, from the, the panel later, what this kind of action can mean to individuals and, and to uh, survivors of crime. Another recent uh, case that I, I think is worth men mentioning in this context is, uh, and I'm sure you've all heard, heard about this, the Iranian uh, national that was arrested at Arlanda Airport just a few weeks ago uh, when entering Sweden uh, to visit uh, friends or relatives. Uh, and person being suspected for, for a large number of murders committed in Iran uh, back in, in the 80s, in the late 80s. Um, and this action, this arrest, uh, came about because there has been individuals, organizations, uh, relatives of killed people collecting evidence for a long, long time on these crimes. 
Uh, and there has been people putting together a case files, maybe on, on several people, I don't know, but at least on this indiv individual. Uh, and they've also been tracking how these individuals move and travel. So when this person, when they became clear that he was traveling to, uh, to Sweden, they contacted uh, Swedish authorities handed over the case file, and the Swedish prosecutor and police took action based on that. And of course, uh, this is, happens 30 years after the crime was committed. Uh, so this, of course, shows that justice can take time. Uh, 30 years is, of course, a long time. Uh, but I think it's, it shows more than that. It shows that civil society can play a vital role in work to uh, ensure accountability. Uh, I think it also shows the ambition within the police and the prosecutor here in Sweden and their willingness to actually take concrete action when things like this come up and when there is a possibility to act. Uh, so to sum up, I think there are def several uh, avenues uh, for legal accountability. Uh, I think there are some significant and very positive developments that we see right now. Uh, but obviously, there much, much more needs to be done. Um, and I think we, we will have a super interesting panel here today that will elaborate on these different uh, aspects and, and also um, reflect on what more is needed. Thank you. Thank you, John. <clears throat> Our uh, next speaker is uh, Johanna Mannegren Salimovic. She's an associate uh, professor and senior researcher uh, here at the Swedish Institute of uh, International Affairs. She has published her research internationally on the topic of peace building with a special interest in transitional justice, reconciliation processes, the politics of memory, and gender politics. She's also a member uh, of the board of the Swedish foundation Kvinna till Kvinna that promotes women's rights in conflict-affected countries. Welcome, Janet. Thank you. So uh, my role here today is to say a few words um, that place a topic at hand in the context of peace and conflict research um, and the long-term perspectives of the possibilities of integrating uh, accountability into processes of reconciliation. And this is the research that I conduct here at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. And so briefly, I will just make three observations uh, why accountability is so important in relation to peace building. My first observation is simply that accountability matters for peace a lot. It matters for the victims and survivors and their relatives. In all conflict-affected societies, the, the notion that perpetrators of war crimes should be punished is absolute key. Research has shown this time and time again. Of course, there are many reasons for this, and one is security. 
in many societies, it can be actually be very dangerous if perpetrators are on the loose. Peace is fragile and violence can flare up very quickly. Another is that just about all survivors that, for example, have been given witness statements or, or in other ways participated in accountability measures. Um, just like so many people I have interviewed and discussed in societies like in Bosnia, Rwanda, South Africa, Northern Iraq, they all say that accountability is important for moral reasons. They feel they have a duty to future generations, to their children, to draw this line between right and wrong, even between good and evil. And they want a sort of clean slate to rebuild society, to create something new, to let the voices of democracy and peace be heard. They need to take away the power from the warmongers in order to open up that space that's necessary to build reconciliation and an inclusive society. My second observation is that to build peace is a very complex process and there are a number of measures and processes that need to interact and be interlinked. And accountability is of course one piece of this puzzle, but there are other pieces as well. Acknowledgement, that is that the, the truth of what happened should be accepted and also disseminated. And reparations, that victims will get some kind of material compensation um, for their suffering. And the challenge, of course, is to get all these pieces to work together. And um, as John was saying, it's, of course, within these fields, there are also many different um, uh, pieces of international, national, and local um, spaces for accountability. But if you only get to focus on the accountability aspects, um, there will be some gaps. For example, if you still live in a refugee camp or if you still live in poverty, you need also other measures in order to regain dignity. And I think that this is something that criminal trials do not have a lot of space to take care of. And so we also need other platforms, initiatives by civil society, um, truth commissions and so on are also important to fit into this puzzle. My third observation of importance for peace building is that justice is selective. And this is of course always true, but maybe even more so in conflict affected societies. Of course this has to do with the sheer magnitude of the crimes that we are looking at here. Genocide, ethnic cleansing, crimes against humanity. It's not possible for all perpetrators to be punished. In relation to that, we also need to pay attention to why certain crimes are silenced and marginalized and not others. For example, gendered crimes. Here we can see that it's been much harder to punish perpetrators that have committed conflict-related um, sexual violence. Um, and there is, of course, shame and stigma connected to the victims who take this brave step uh, to give testimony about these crimes. Women witnesses have been ill-treated in courts and their security not safeguarded. And of course, this does undermine the role that criminal justice can play uh, for these victims. Uh, also, we need to note that increasingly, we understand that also men and boys have been victims, are victims of sexual violence in conflict. And this is also something that we need to think about. Also, the fact that accountability measures are selective means that they can also reignite conflict. They can be used to push groups against each other. 
And so, of course, while accountability for war crimes is something that's in constructed individually, uh, but in societies where crimes have been committed against collectives, this is sometimes a misfit. Um, and sometimes this misfit can be used for propaganda purposes. Um, and of course, as we have seen in, for example, the Balkans and many other places, revisionism is strong, propaganda is rife. Outreach programs, especially if justice is distant, as in the cases we talk about here, these programs are of utmost importance. So these were my three observations. Um, but I would like to conclude with, with a fourth one, uh, which is that in research on peace and conflict, we haven't much investigated this uh, idea of universal jurisdiction. And I think this is, must be increasingly giving much more attention, um, especially in relationship to large diasporas created through refugee crisis and so on, that will demand their right uh, for justice. So on this note, I will listen very carefully to the panel here today. Um, we will hear about experiences from three different conflict-affected societies. Um, and um, I'm happy to open up this debate. I'm happy to, that we have been able to organize the seminar together with civil rights defenders. Thank you. Thank you, Johanna. Um, I think we're going to uh, get back to many of the, the issues that you presented now during um, the panel discussion. So uh, without further ado, I would like to welcome our panelists up on stage. We're um, very happy to have you here with us today. Uh, you all have uh, extensive experiences within um, your respective contexts and fields, so uh, I think you're going to be able to bring uh, a lot of interesting perspectives um, to, this, uh, to the discussions. Uh, I'm going to take uh, the liberty of, of uh, introducing all of you at once, uh, so bear with me. Uh, I'm going to start with Dr. Mark Klamberg. Uh, who is a professor in uh, international law at Stockholm University. He had previously held a postdoc uh, at the Institute for European and Comparative Law at the University of Oxford and is a visiting lecturer at Edinburgh University. Uh, and in the end of this year, uh, he will publish an edited book with 10 contributors on the investigation and prosecution in Sweden of international crimes. I'd like to hear more about that. Um, Selma Korzenic is the head of uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina program at the Trial International. She has previously uh, been a project manager at the Research and Documentation Center in Sarajevo, uh, where she has worked on projects related to Bosnia-Herzegovina war in the 1990s. Uh, and she is uh, specialized in the field of transitional justice and work directly with wartime uh, war survivors. Uh, Mona Zainedine uh, is the litigation program coordinator uh, at the Syrian Center for Media and Freedom of Expression, which I'm going to refer to as SCM from now on because it's a very long name. Um, Mona's work focuses on women's participation in litigation and the development and implementation of comprehensive litigation, communication and advocacy strategies. Uh, she has also previously worked uh, with other civ uh, Syrian civil society organizations on human rights documentation 
advocacy and campaigning. And it should also be uh, mentioned that SCM was one of the organization that, uh, organizations that filed um, the Syria um, complaint that John mentioned uh, earlier. Delhuaz uh, Haji is a lawyer and human rights activist. Uh, she's also a board member uh, and the Sweden branch director of Yazda, which is a global Yazidi organization. And in the beginning of next year, uh, she's also uh, going to jointly direct the Yazda documentation team in Duhuk, which we would like to hear more about. So um, thank you very much for being here. Uh, I, would, um, I would like to start with directing a question to Mark. Uh, I would like to just initially ask you to tell us a little bit about the, the legal avenues that are at hand for those trying to pursue accountability for grave international crimes and what, uh, in your, your view, the advantages and disadvantages of, of each avenue would be. And maybe you could also tell us a little bit about the requirements that, that need to be in place for, for each alternative to, to actually be feasible. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me to this very interesting seminar. Um, the assumption in the legal framework that was adopted after World War II, and with the legal framework, I'm thinking about the Geneva Conventions from 1949, the Convention Against Torture and the Genocide Convention, was that these type of crimes should be prosecuted on a domestic level. States should either prosecute it themselves or surrender uh, an alleged criminal to other states who could do it. Uh, what happened in the 1990s was that there was an understanding and agreement that uh, this couldn't be left to the states alone. And it was against this background that the UN, the UN Security Council established two tribunals for Rwanda and uh, a former Yugoslavia. Uh, there was also what I would call internationalized uh, jurisdictions where you have a mix between national and international elements. For example, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, uh, the panels for East Timor, and the Special Chambers in Cambodia. And uh, uh, we, we have the Under Secretary General, uh, previous Under Secretary General of the UN, Hans Krell, who was uh, pivotal in that work. Uh, and um, uh, these were all limited to specific conflicts, limited in time, and there was an understanding and a will to establish the permanent uh, jurisdiction, so that's ICC. And when we're talking about these uh, limitations and requirements, one has to ask four questions uh, when considering the competence or, and possibilities of these courts, and it's what, when, who and where, uh, because all of these courts are limited to some degree in these different variables. And uh, uh, the, the, the assumption in international law is that um, states cannot be forced to anything. The only entity that can force states to do anything against their will is the UN Security Council. So that's one limit or one problem when we're we're going to talk about the atrocities committed in certain countries. So if you don't have the will, the consent of the state concerned, if you don't have the UN Security Council, it's difficult to establish international jurisdictions. Uh, when it comes, the, 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 the title of this seminar is Use of Universal Jurisdictions to Sanction Grave International Crimes. So 
if we, if we talk about the ICC, which often comes first to mind, we have to remember that it's not a court based on universal jurisdiction. It has universal aspiration, but not universal jurisdiction. It can only exercise jurisdiction in relation to state parties, either in relation to crimes committed on their territory or crimes committed by their citizens. Uh, so in that sense, uh, the jurisdiction of the ICC is limited. Now, the UN Security Council can give the court jurisdiction over uh, in relation to state parties that haven't consented, but then we have this problem with the veto power. Um, now, uh, so we have the International Criminal Court, we have international tribunals in the first group, then we have internationalized jurisdictions, and thirdly, we have domestic jurisdictions. And uh, earlier this year, I had a conversation with Theodore Meron, who at the time was president of the MICT, which is the mechanism that has taken over after the ICTY and ICTR, and he was also the president of the ICTY, and he clearly stated that he sees the future of international criminal justice in domestic courts. So that's why I'm very happy that uh, we have, uh, among the concerned state agencies, I'm thinking about the police and prosecution, dedicated units working with this because it's I think uh, we will they have already done a lot of uh, valuable work but I see that there's a lot of work that remains to be done and in this regard uh, there's two main uh, potential obstacles so one obstacle is that uh, when using relying on universal jurisdiction or extraterritorial jurisdiction uh, there has to be either a, an approval by the Swedish government or by the Swedish prosecutor general. Now, this hasn't been a, a major problem in the current cases that we've seen, uh, but uh, we've read in the news about the investigation of uh, the Iraqi defense minister. So that will potentially cause problems for the Swedish government. Will they approve a prosecution against Iraq's defense minister? Uh, another potential obstacle when we're talking about um, uh, domestic investigations is immunity. This, again, hasn't been a problem in the existing cases, but if we start to see cases against representatives and high officials of other countries, this may become uh, an issue. Uh, and uh, uh, I hope this has provided with some overview over the existing mechanism, and I'm happy to come back for further comments. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Um, I'd like to uh, turn to you next, uh, Selma, uh, because as I mentioned, you're, you're working to achieve accountability uh, for crimes committed uh, within the context of, of the Balkan Wars in the 1990s. And uh, as opposed to, to the others in the panel, these are crimes that took place at, at least, uh, you know, in comparison, um, you know, not very recently. Um, and there are also, uh, there have also been different kind of legal avenues established uh, after, after this conflict um, that um, in order to hold those that uh, committed the crimes accountable for their, their crimes. Um, so to some extent, you might have uh, an opportunity to evaluate how, um, how those uh, efforts have, uh, have functioned and um, what the outcome of them have been. So uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the, the legal avenues that um, 
are in place, how they came about, um, and maybe share your thoughts on, on the impact of, uh, of those initiatives. You know, could, could anything have been done differently? Thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> as you said, I will first give you a short brief about those mechanisms that you are mentioning, and then I will share with you the opinion about, let's say, how they influenced uh, the society in Bosnia and Herzegovina and what are the outcomes on the field. Uh, as you probably know, uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for, uh, for the former Yugoslavia was established in uh, 1993. It was created by the UN and it was dealt with the genocide crimes against humanity and the war crimes that were committed on the territory of the former Yugoslavia and as well on the territory of the Bosnia and Herzegovina. And they mostly prosecuted the leaders and the planners of the atrocities that were committed in that time. From that perspective and uh, from the perspective of uh, talking with the people in the Bosnia and Herzegovina, but in a general, I mean, we can conclude that the ICTY in The Hague played a historical role in the boat. It's completing a, all the trials and helping establishing the domestic judiciary who continued its work later on. Uh, after, actually, since 2005, uh, conscious about the need to conclude its work, the ICTY has referred the cases regarding middle and lower level perpetrators to the countries of the region, as well as to Bosnia and Herzegovina. In that time, Bosnia and Herzegovina taken up this task with a diligence, trying 10 indictees referred by the ICTY and taking over the investigations of dozen more cases files from the prosecutor's office of the ICTY. In 2000, the court of the Bosnia and Herzegovina and the prosecutor's office of the Bosnia and Herzegovina were established as the first institutions at the state level with a competence through the whole territory of the Bosnia and Herzegovina to prosecute the war crimes. In 2003, their competence in the criminal matters extended to the crimes, organized crimes, economic crimes, and corruption. The same year, ICTY and the Office of the High Representative in the Bosnia and Herzegovina agreed on a plan to establish a war crimes chamber. And that was like the key momentum for the domestic prosecutions. Within the court of the Bosnia and Herzegovina, an essential part to the establishment of the rule of law and the fundamental to the reconciliation process, creating necessary conditions to secure a lasting peace in Bosnia. In 2003, also, we saw the adoption of the criminal code and the criminal procedural code of the BIH law. These laws define the crimes under the competence of the court of the Bosnia and Herzegovina uh, and procedures to be applied by this court. Among other crimes, the BIH criminal codes includes genocide, crimes against humanity, and the war crimes, and becoming fully operational in 2005 when the prosecution of war crimes started. 
I will just give you a couple of data to, to, to let you know about the figures and the prosecutions that still are ongoing. By April 2010, the BIH prosecutor's office was able to report the existence of an approximately 1,380 cases of war crimes files pertaining to some of 8,249 suspects disturbed among the 17 jurisdictions in the Bosnia and Herzegovina who were dealing with the crimes. New data, the recent report published by the OSC in Bosnia and Herzegovina is telling us that between 2004 and the end of 2018, the state-level judiciary of Bosnia and Herzegovina completed 217 war crimes trials, including a number of high-level and complex cases indicated by the prosecutor's office of the Bosnian. So we are talking about like pretty huge numbers, I mean, pretty serious work done on the international and the national level. We are talking about the ICTY as some kind of historical momentum for the former Yugoslavia, but also especially for the Bosnian Herzegovina. First of all, because this is how I understand personally the ICTY when I speak with, with, with survivors. After the, these huge uh, violations that were happened that uh, Johanna mentioned actually, especially rape, the sexual violence, different kind of tor tortures, people really needed the floor, the space to tell what happened to them. So basically, when we are talking about the role of the ICTY and later on uh, domestic courts, it really paved the way for many of the victims to tell the truth, to finally feel, have the feeling that they are, how to say, they're important, that their evidences are important, that they can tell and that based on that what they are telling, somebody will find guilty. And that's one of the very important and positive aspects of the criminal prosecutions before the ICTY uh, and, and domestic courts. But somehow from the distance of 20 years after, we really see that the Bosnian society almost fully relied on the criminal prosecution. And now when, when we are seeing all those positive things and comparing what has been done besides that in the Bosnian Herzegovina, we do not see too much. We still see only the criminal justice working their job, but without other transitional justice mechanisms, we are now seeing that the situation is not improved. I'm unfortunately telling this, but this is a truth. I will just share with you some of the examples. I mean, uh, the work done by the courts of the, in the Bosnia and Herzegovina and the ICTY haven't been institu institutionalized uh, in the Bosnia and Herzegovina. As Johanna mentioned, uh, currently, re revisionism is a very, very ongoing. I will just share with you a couple of examples that are telling us how, unfortunately, the influence of, of, of the verdicts and the work that was done by the ju judiciary uh, is not accepted. Recently, I found out that 
for example, in Republika Srpska, uh, education system put the new history book for the high school students. And I read the parts from the book where they are describing Radovan Karadžić as a poet and the first president of Republika Srpska, without mentioning any word about his responsible for the crimes, the genocide crimes against humanity. Recently, we found out that a student dormitory in one part of Bosnia and Herzegovina in Republika Srpska is named by Rad Radovan, uh, sorry, uh, Radko Mladic, another ICTY uh, person who was uh, trialed before the ICTY for the genocide in Srebrenica. We even have the political institutions, representatives of the political institutions who are openly neglecting, glorifying, and minimizing what happened during the war. So basically, this is sending us some additional signal or asking us a question whether and if the criminal justice and the prosecutions are the only and the most important answer to the dealing with the past and the reconciliation in Bosnia and Herzegovina. In the case of my country, it really shows that without other mechanisms for dealing with the past, reconciliation and the contribution done by the criminal justice cannot have long-lasting efforts. Thank you. Thank you for that, Selma. Uh, I hope we're going to have time to get back to some of those notions later on. Um, I, I'd like to turn to you, Delhuas. Um, uh, and I can say, um, as, as I think many, of, uh, many in this room are uh, familiar with, um, ISIS uh, initiated an attack against the Yazidi community um, in Shingal uh, on the 3rd of August 2014. And during this attack, or during the following days, uh, between 6,000 to 7,000 uh, Yazidis were killed, uh, while almost 7,000 uh, Yazidi women and children were captured and uh, enslaved. Um, this attack has been recognized as a genocide um, by some institutions. Uh, the European Parliament, I think, is one. Um, and well, many of the acts forming part of the genocide is also still um, ongoing. And your organization, Yazda, um, is working to achieve accountability for those very crimes. Um, could you maybe tell us a little bit about how uh, Yazda is working to hold the perpetrators of these crimes uh, accountable and whether have you seen uh, any advancements so far? Thank you, Aida, and thank you for having me in this interesting seminar. Um, I would, uh, before uh, answering your question, I would like to just give a bit more background to what happened in... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Can you hear me now? Okay. So before answering the question, I would like to uh, give a bit more background to what happened back in um, 2014, August 2014. So the following weeks, um, ISIS captured thousands of members of the Yazidi community 
um, summarily executing thousands of men and, and, and subjecting thousands of women and gr uh, girls to prolonged uh, physical abuse, uh, sexual violence, and enslavement. And Yazidi boys were separated from their families. Uh, they were first to, forced to convert to Islam and recruited to, uh, as ch child soldiers. And many men and elderly women were uh, also coerced into converting and, and used as um, forced labor. The sites of religious and cultural significance to the Yazidis uh, were also deliberately destroyed. And on uh, 15th of June, 2016, the Human Rights um, Council of the United Nations released the findings of a report of the Independent International uh, Commission of Inquiry on the Syrian Arab Republic on ISIS crimes against the Yazidis uh, declared that ISIS actions uh, against Yazidis in the Sinjar re region amounted um, to genocide, as well as the multiple war crimes and crimes uh, against humanity. And many states, as you uh, mentioned, has, um, and, and, and international organizations have, have uh, concurred and recognized that the crimes committed by ISIS against the Yazidis and, and other um, religious minorities in Iraq constitute genocide and, and some of these um, institutions and, and countries include uh, the United Nations, uh, the European Union, um, but also the um, United Kingdom, Australia, France, Scotland, and also just a couple of days ago, uh, Portugal. Um, and tragically, ISIS genocidal campaign against the Yazidis continue to this day. Um, until this day, the, the Yazidi genocide is, is ongoing. Uh, more than 3,000 Yazidi women and girls are still uh, unaccounted for. Um, and also hundreds of thousands of Yazidis uh, still live in IDP camps in, in northern Iraq. And the, 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 the Shingal province that was, uh, was attacked is, um, is, is still not rebuilt. And that's why the the the, pe the people um, are still living in in refuge camps. Um, so Yazda is a global Yazid organization. Um, we started to document um, ISIS crimes in in Iraq and Syria in October 2015. Uh, to this end, thousands of hours of testimonies have been recorded. <coughs> sorry, and. Uh, most of mass graves, so more than 70 mass graves and killing sites have been have been mapped. Um, we have documentation of mass graves, um, killing sites. Um, these have been the priorities of, of Yaza documentation team. And um, we have also, the, the documentation team has also been, been uh, working on and reporting on destroyed uh, Yazidi cultural and, and um, religious sites. And so some of the, um, the successes that we have uh, seen uh, so far since 2014 uh, or 15, um, when the project uh, started, is that we have um, we are uh, working with Amal Kuni. Um, as you might know, Amal Kuni is a, a human rights lawyer working with um, Fordati Chambers based in London. And she has her own legal team. And they have been working with us 
to support survivors pro bono since 2016. And we are also um, we are also working with Nadia Murad. She was um, one of the first survivors that we uh, supported. Yes, that also gives a platform for survivors to tell their story to uh, travel around the world, and uh, Nadia Murad was one of them. Um, some of the other successes that we have seen is the uh, establishment of UNITAD. I will come back to that hopefully later, uh, the establishment of that, and also the U UN under the UN uh, Security Council Resolution 2379. And uh, also the, um, we have seen uh, some cases in, in Germany too, too recently, just uh, a few months ago. Uh, you might have heard Jennifer uh, W case and, and um, I think that was the case. I'm pretty sure that that was the case that John uh, Saufer was, um, was mentioning. And so that um, that case is, uh, or uh, much of the evidence that, that is um, presented in the case was actually the, the work uh, of our documentation team. So that is some of the successes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Um, moving uh, to you, Mona. The, the SCM has been very active over the past um, couple of years in trying to bring uh, perpetrators um, of grave international crimes uh, to, um, or committed, in uh, committed in Syria to, uh, to justice. And this includes perpetrators that, uh, who have been acting on behalf of the Syrian regime or who form part of the regime. Uh, and just to mention some numbers, um, the, well, the latest numbers I, I could find says that uh, more than 14,000 people are thought to have been tortured to death uh, by the Syrian regime since the start of the Syrian uprising in uh, 2011, while uh, 127,000 people uh, are assumed to be dead or still in custody. And these are some of the crimes that um, SCM are seeking justice for. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about um, the work that SCM is doing to try to uh, achieve accountability uh, for grave international crimes committed in Syria uh, and, and maybe about what it's like to work uh, for accountability um, for crimes committed by a regime that is still in place and what have you seen any of that <coughs> so far? Well, thank you, Aida, and thank you for having me here. Um, yes. Uh, I'd like to begin by saying, I mean, with the root of the ICC blocked and with no real prospect of independent justice and accountability in Syria, uh, victims, survivors of torture and supporting civil society organizations have turned towards third countries to investigate cases based on universal jurisdiction and based on the dual nationality of certain Syrian citizens. And SCM, just to give a brief background, it's a civil society organization that was founded in Syria in 2004 by the, the lawyer Mazen Darwish. And back then it largely focused on media and freedom of expression rights, but it's now extended its programs and litigation is uh, one of the primary ones. 
and uh, we have supported on several cases pertaining to torture in the last few years. And these cases include complaints in Austria, in Germany, in Sweden, and of course, most recently in Norway last month. And these complaints, as John had mentioned, uh, in Germany have led to an arrest warrant against Jamil Hassan, who uh, up until July 2019 headed the Air Force intelligence uh, apparatus, which is one of the most, notor one's most notorious for its use of torture. And uh, similarly in France, uh, three arrest warrants have been issued against Ali Mamlouk, who is the director of the National Security Bureau and uh, special advisor to the president, uh, to President Assad on uh, security affairs, and uh, an arrest warrant against uh, Abdel Salam Faraj Mahmoud, who is the director of investigation at the Air Force Intelligence Branch in uh, Damascus. Now, what are the implications of these arrest warrants? I mean, limited. Uh, they do uh, limit the mobility and the travel. Of the, of the perpetrators uh, of which these arrest warrants have been issued against. And also importantly, uh, they play a role in uh, limiting their participation in political negotiations in the future and how, would they, how they would be part of, uh, uh, um, I mean, future uh, governments would be very limited as well. So these are the particular effects. And uh, also the four complaints filed in Germany have led to the first trial worldwide on state torture in Syria, which is set to take place in Koblenz. Um, uh, so the German federal prosecutor has charged Anwar R and Iyad A, two former security apparatus officials. And Anwar R is suspected to be complicit in the torture of 4,000 people between 2011 to 2012 in the general intelligence Khatib branch. And more specifically, uh, how do civil society organizations play a role, and more specifically Syrian ones? Well, first of all, we work on advocating for the cases uh, within the Syrian communities present in Europe and in neighboring countries. And uh, we work on searching and identifying potential witnesses for the cases and for survivors to testify. And we work on really fleshing out transitional justice processes for them and explaining the long route and, and how it's really more of a marathon really than you know a short run. And um, working on managing expectations, of course, uh, is a very key role. And uh, as a Syrian civil society organizations, perhaps one of the strongest roles we play is providing evidence on the chains of commands pertaining to the security apparatuses, as well as uh, chains of custodies. Great, thank you. So um, we heard from uh, Johanna earlier about uh, you know, why accountability for grave international crimes uh, is important and why it matters. Um, she mentioned you know, security reasons, uh, moral reasons, and, and the will uh, for survivors to kind of start on a, on a clean slate. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask all of you in the panel, uh, why, you know, why would you say that it's important to <coughs> achieve accountability in, in your specific context? I'm thinking Selma and Del Juaz and Mona, you all meet 
survivors uh, within your work, and it will be interesting to hear, you know, what what do they say about um, the, you know, why is why is accountability important? And um, um, and I think um, it would also be interesting to hear what you think the the impact uh, of, you know, what would the impact of accountability be in your in your specific context? So, and I'd also like to hear from you, Mark, like general reflections on the topic. Does anyone want to start? Lona, if you yeah. I mean, it's very hard to imagine how a sustainable peace will be possible in Syria without justice and accountability. Without justice, there's going to be a second war in Syria, and it's going to be a war of retribution, basically, and a rise of extremism, and that will wreak havoc on Syrian society, but and is likely to have its effects spread beyond Syria as well. And although I said that the, I mean, the victories of universal jurisdictions have been largely limited, but they are nonetheless important, uh, mainly because they keep the critical issue of detainees on, on the table, basically. They keep it at the negotiation table. If we weren't um, filing all these complaints and having all this media and advocacy, it would be largely a lost cause. And it sends a strong message, I think, to the survivors um, in the host countries. And it sends the message that, you know, we care about you as human beings, not just as citizens. And it sends a large message to the perpetrators out there that no war criminals or perpetrators of crimes against humanity are welcome here. And by and large, how I think of this is basically building a justice and accountability movement that allows us to be better prepared should the political circumstances be in our favor one day and should more comprehensive justice avenues be open with the structural investigations going on, with all the gathering of evidence, this is basically better preparation for future, uh, more comprehensive justice mechanisms. Thank you. Selma, you wanted to add something? Yeah, I <coughs> actually support what <coughs> Mona just said. I will just uh, add uh, on the level of, let's say, some kind of individual impressions when talking with the victims, it's the personal satisfaction and recognition of their suffering. That could be something like very important. It's also improving the sense of dignity. It's very important, especially for the survivors of wartime sexual violence and rape. And uh, on this um, social society level, it's giving like really belief that state is functioning and that state is a capable of guaranteeing the protection of human rights. I just want to refer to what, what I just said. Okay, if you were asking the ordinary Bosnian citizen or the, somebody from the victims community about this 10 years ago, the answers would be like this. But if you go to Bosnia and Herzegovina and now ask the similar questions, I'm not sure it's gonna be the same. As I said, due to the fact that other transitional justice mechanisms are not functioning, people stop believing in criminal justice. I will just give you an example. We have been doing similar things on the, on the local level, especially with survivors of sexual violence, where we are helping them to put the perpetrators before trials and have the proceedings. And 
we are pretty much successful uh, when it comes to that. And you have the victim, the survivor, who finally see the justice and recognize that it's possible at the end. And the person got, let's say, seven years of the prison for the crimes that were committed. But what is happening? Seven days after, you have the situation where the released war criminal from the ICTY, who was sentenced 15 years ago, is coming. Uh, he's released after uh, serving two-thirds of the sentence. He's coming to Bosnia and Herzegovina, and you have the representatives of the states, the politicians, who are marking that and celebrating that. You are having the situations where the war criminals are you know, welcomed. You have even the religious leaders who are pronouncing them the, the, as the saints. So basically, you can, you can imagine how this satisfaction that you have on your personal level influence when you are seeing these kind of things, when you are seeing that the media sharing these kind of things. Recently, I will just give you an example. There was a huge trial 10 years ago, in the time when the international judges were in the Bosnia and Herzegovina, one of the hugest uh, sexual violence <coughs> crimes case from the Herzegovina. And the perpetrators were convicted on 20 years of the prison, thanks to the victims who really were willing to testify. And recently, because one of the major guys, the perpetrators, was very much connected to the one political party. Recently, actually a year before, our state minister of justice used the bilateral agreement with Croatia for the uh, uh, transferring of the perpetrators to free this guy led to the Croatia because this person had dual citizenship of the Bosnian Herzegovina and Croatia without telling to anyone. You can imagine how these kind of things, sending the messages to individuals who are trying to understand that achieving the justice through the criminal system is something positive. So this is the question, I mean, in general for me, I'm asking myself those days, you know, what are the next steps, how we are going to continue dealing with, with, with other things that we might deal in our society. Um, uh, your question relates to the impact of international criminal justice and uh, if one kind of um, looks at what is the purpose of this, I mean one purpose is to bring the offender to justice, some kind of retribution, but uh, other goals include peace, reconciliation, you've spoken about that, and preventing crime. And uh, as a scholar, uh, what, what I'm interested of is kind of are, are we able to answer this question, does international criminal justice work? And uh, there is uh, some empirical research into this field, so I'm thinking about scholars such as Beth Simmons, Sarah Novan, Fruman, and also there's a lot of research on whether reconciliation, whether these courts have contributed to reconciliation in former Yugoslavia or not. And um, it's difficult to do this kind of research, and in some regards, one can see positive outcomes. So, for example, when the ICC started to prosecute uh, Lubanga for a recruitment of child soldiers, one could there were uh, observations that the use of child soldiers decreased in certain conflicts, so there's a potential 
really a connection between that. Uh, one can also see uh, when it comes to there's a potential that uh, uh, commanders at the medium level, which not necessarily commit crimes themselves, but have subordinates, but pot that potentially commit crimes, that these persons may be influenced by knowing that uh, these kind of mechanisms and uh, are are there, and that they may be put at trial if if they don't watch what their what their subordinates are doing. My, my conclusion from, from reviewing the empirical research is that uh, um, legal, criminal legal justice is important, may play a role, but a limited role. If we want to achieve peace, reconciliation, and prevent crime, we have to do what Selma is talking about, uh, talking about these things in schools. Uh, the politicians have to take responsibility. So what happens in the courtrooms are very important, but if we want to kind of achieve these grander goals, the most important goals, I would say, it has to happen also uh, elsewhere. Um, so I, I agree with um, everything that has been said by my co-panelists. And so uh, accountability, uh, the importance of accountability in, in the context that I work um, in is very important, um, especially for the survivors to for them to to regain their uh, their dignity, but but also uh, justice and and um, but for the Yazidi uh, community in general, its accountability is important because um, they would um, uh, obtain the, the the truth of, of what what happened in in August two thousand and fourteen. Because um, as many of you might not know, um, uh, the 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 last attack was the 74th time that the Yazidis have been been attacked um, through, through history. And uh, none of the attacks, or, or not many of the attacks, have been, been documented. Uh, and um, uh, many people um, don't really believe that, that this, uh, these 74 um, uh, attacks have, have occurred. Um, but also for, for peace building, um, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, around three, three to four hundred thousand Yazidis still live in, in IDP camps, and and um, uh, many of the Yazidis don't feel safe. They don't feel safe in Iraq, and they, they don't don't see any any other alternative than to um, to immigrate to to Europe or uh, wherever, uh, but not not in Iraq. Um, and, and also, I've been, um, through the, the past three years, I've been talking to a lot of these um, who, people who are living in, in refugee camps in, in Iraq, and, but also many of the survivors, and 99% of them uh, say that um, for them to, to re regain their dignity and to regain a, um, um, their life back and, and to recover from, from the trauma, um, they need justice, or they want justice. They they don't want revenge. They they want to meet their perpetrators and in the court. They they want to tell their stories and uh, in the court of law uh, and not revenge. Um, uh, thank you. I would. Um, 
Well, I have more questions to ask you, but I think we have to let the, the audience in, actually, because uh, we don't have that much time left. Uh, I'm also going to invite uh, Johanna and John back up on the stage in case the audience uh, wants to ask them any questions as well. Um, we're going to have two microphones being passed around. We have one there and one here. And I think it's best if we collect a couple of questions and then the panel gets to answer them all at once. Uh, and also, if you have a question directed at a certain person, just mention uh, their name. I think we had an early hand here. Thank you. I'm Hans Corell, former legal counselor of the United Nations. Since Mark Lambert mentioned my name, may I add a couple of words here? It's been very interesting to listen to you, and it's very important to listen to people who have experience from the field that you have here. There's one actor that is not doing his job here, and this is why I wanted to mention something. It's the Security Council. I've followed the Council for 10 years when I was the Legal Council at the UN, and I'm extremely critical because the Council actually acted in Yugoslavia and in Rwanda. And I was very suspicious of international criminal justice when I was a young judge in Sweden, but it completely changed my mind when I was a war crimes rapporteur in the former Yugoslavia, in Croatia and Bosnia-Herzegovina back in 1992 and 93. And when I came to the UN, I was involved in establishing all the courts that you have mentioned here. But when the council doesn't do its job, it sends a signal to the world that you can, as you get away with impunity. I actually wrote an article for the Max Planck Institute that they published last week, where you can read about this, and it's very easy to find it. If you Google my name, Hans, H-A-N-S, and then my name, Corell, C-O-R-E-L-L, you will find my website, and there, under selected material, and the United Nations, you will find this article. And I'm extremely critical of the Council, because what it all boils down to is crime prevention. Just like a national criminal justice system is there not to put as many people in prison as possible, but to make people understand that you've committed crimes, you, you get in prison. We have to have the same system at the international level. And the council can actually ask the ICC, for example, in Syria. Kofi Annan, when we talked about Syria, he was so critical of the Council. When he got his mission in Syria back in 2011, we sat talking about this in April 2012. We had then worked in Kenya for several years to assist them. And he said, Hans, can I work in Syria as I worked in Kenya? And then he shook his head and said, no, I can't because I do not have the support of the Security Council, which is a precondition to succeed. I will leave this office which he did in August the same year. So welcome to read this. I can't speak for a longer time now, but, but please do, because I, this is based on my personal experience of all these different criminal tribunals and the aftermath here. But thank you for your presentations. Very important. Thank you. Let's see. We also, it could be that, I'm, yeah, let's take a question here. Uh, this is a question. Uh, my name is Hanin Chakra. I'm a Palestinian Syrian from Sweden. Mix of everything. 
and this is uh, a question uh, directed both to Selma Dehuaz and uh, Mona uh, on the, um, I mean, the uh, transforming, I know Syria isn't there, but uh, the meeting between the perpetrator and the victim of uh, war crimes as a way of uh, sort of restorative justice, uh, what does the, uh, what, what does the crime do to an entire society? And how do you uh, restore uh, relations that were severed uh, through this horrible crime of uh, genocide or, or uh, yeah, crimes against humanity, sexual violence and so on? Should we maybe take another question and then uh, we'll hand you several ones? Thank you for this interesting uh, seminar. My name is Anne Kubai. I'm a street professor and researcher in peace and conflict and transitional justice. I, I have a, just a few for your short questions. The first one is uh, from Johanna's presentation uh, on what I think are the limitations of uh, criminal justice. I'm not a lawyer, but I've been working on this for 20 years, especially on Rwanda. So we have seen that uh, when we apply criminal justice alone, as we have also had, it's not sufficient because you know it doesn't um, address issues of uh, individual trauma, psychosocial uh, issues and uh, relations. So how do we solve that problem? Because this is very well established as a problem. And then I uh, have another question about uh, the minimizing and um, of uh, crimes and when people come out, they are celebrated and Rwanda has been struggling with this. I think the problem is that uh, when we do either transitional justice, reconciliation or criminal justice, situations unfold in ways that are not were not expected, and Rwanda has proved this. But then how do we address these unexpected uh, um, situations that arise after we have applied all these mechanisms? And the last one is for the Yazini group. I've been very interested in this, although because I don't speak the language, this has been a limitation for my work. Nevertheless, uh, I'm happy to meet you, so we will talk. But my question is, what the Baba share uh, did. Uh, for those who are not familiar, you will explain. But the Babashan gave this uh, edict, this declaration, allowing the women that had been violated to be received back by the communities. So I would like us to say, uh, you to explain a little more about what uh, this achieved or how such approaches to justice and uh, reconciliation and addressing trauma can also be advanced, if at all, they have any uh, effect uh, as they seem uh, to do. Especially when the next speaker said that uh, people stop believing in criminal justice at some point when it becomes distant, like in ICTR or ICTY and all these other issues. Thank you. Um, so does anyone um, feel like they want to answer? We have first a question um, 
about what uh, these kind of crimes does with society and how you um, restore uh, trust, I guess, in um, um, after those crimes within society. And yeah. Um, sure, I'm happy to take a shot at answering your question. Um, you're absolutely right. First, in the sense that in the Syria case, I believe we're not there yet. We're not at restorative or transformative justice initiatives. But it's becoming clear, I mean, uh, as we do our work, that people do indeed, uh, and this is more like addressing the limitations of universal jurisdiction and just traditional court case uh, justice, uh, that people really see the limitations of, I mean, issuing an arrest warrant and how far reaching is that? I mean, uh, so it really calls out, uh, I mean, uh, I, I mean, it really uh, sheds light on the need for uh, other initiatives to take place. And this you find particularly when it comes to trying to get women to uh, participate in justice proceedings. I mean, it's a real challenge because um, uh, women often w are hesitant to get involved because of unwanted exposure, because of the lack of protection, social stigma, and of course, in a place like Syria where honor is key, there's always the assumption that um, you know there was a, there, there was sexual violence uh, for you know uh, uh, for survivors of detention centers, whether it happened or not. I mean, they are stigmatized if it is, but even as a survivor of a detention center, there's always that stigma that follows. So it really calls out uh, the need for necessary support structures outside of the traditional court system that provide psychosocial support, healing mechanisms within society uh, to address the root causes of, uh, of why atrocities uh, took place in the, uh, to begin with. Yeah. Um, yeah, so w when it comes to Iraq and, and um, the Yazidi situation, we, um, we, are, uh, we have um, a long way to go. Um, as I mentioned, um, the, the genocide is still ongoing. Um, almost, um, or more than 75% of the, the people who fled are still living in, in, in refugee camps, and, and the, the Iraqi authorities um, have not recognized what, what happened to Yazidis as um, for what it is, um, a, a genocide. Um, and um, we have seen some cases. Um, we have seen um, ISIS members being, being tried in, in, in the court of law, but, uh, but they are not tried uh, for, for the full extent of, of their crimes, but, but, for, but only under the, the Iraqi uh, anti-terrorism law. Um, and so, I mean, before the, I mean the, the first and foremost, the um, the persons who are still missing more than uh, three thousand women and girls um, uh, need needs to be um, needs to be found, and um, the areas need to be rebuilt. Uh, but also, what happened needs to be uh, recognized, and and not until then. But but also. Um, so many Yazidis, they, they don't feel safe in Iraq. So also uh, security needs, the international security needs to, um, um, yeah, they need international security for them to feel safe. And, and not until then we can, we can start to, um, um, to trust and, and reconciliate to what happened.
in my opinion. Uh, we had another question here as well, uh, if, if I understood it correctly, how, um, how do we deal with the unexpected effects of, uh, yeah, of um, legal processes um, demanding accountability, where, for example, uh, you have a sort of backlash where war criminals are treated as heroes and, and so forth. Uh, is that something you feel inclined to to answer some? Yeah, I will I will try to answer the question. I'm not sure if it's gonna be fully <laughs> uh, Yeah, basically uh, We have a trials and we have this first meeting survivor victims and you have I mean indictments and, and then the verdicts and this kind of how to say relief that the process is finished. I mean, the people are trying to accept that on the individual level. But then, as I said, I mean, you have the issue of, uh, you know, much more general perceiving of what is the outcome of the trial. I mean, who is the victor, who is the victim, I mean, that kind of understanding is still lacking uh, in the Bosnia Herzegovina. Uh, and this also connects to the first questions in the terms of just the try and trying to connect to explain uh, much more. I mean, uh, the issues of the courts, the, 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 the work of the courts, both the ICTY and the domestic courts are, uh, because they never went deeply and maybe that's not their mission at all deeply into the society to understand uh, the background of why this fact-finding and truth, court's truth was established. They never fully opened the floor at the ground and local level for the people to start this process of restoring. Beside that, they never fully give this possibility for the people to, based on the court, truth, uh, start talking about uh, this maybe some kind of unofficial truth, which is also very important for the people. Because as we said, major crimes were prosecuted, but we still had a lot of crimes who were never be prosecuted and people who really want to talk about that. And that also influenced this as well. Because when you come back to the issue of the divisionism and neglecting, minimizing and glorifying, I believe that at some point this also has the root in this issue. Uh, on the other side, uh, we have been recently preparing some material uh, in regards to that and we talk with a lot of people uh, about this issue. But concretely in the Bosnia and Herzegovina, it's also the problem of uh, the institutions. The system never, beside the trials, the system never put in a place what has been done by the ICTY and domestic courts. And for example, in the, in the, in the situation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, it's really of essential that, for example, the criminal codes, the state criminal code has, I mean, the article which will say for each of the person who deny, who minimize, who glorified Holocaust, crimes against humanity, genocide, and or other crimes, no matter if it's politician or individual or the public person, will be punished. So basically, these are those another steps that should be 
continued after having the verdicts by the ICTY or domestic courts. We do not have that. And I'm not sure even that we are going to have that because the Bosnia and Herzegovina has that kind of constitution where the entities are deciding about this kind of policies. And for example, in the case of Republika Srpska, I'm not sure that the Republika Srpska at the moment will accept these kind of things. So this is one of the issues. On another uh, level, I mean, despite all the work done of the civil society on the local ground, we, we, are, we are still very much missing very concrete local activities of the ordinary citizens and the local communities, leaders, just to show through their examples to the people that it's possible, I mean, to understand this and to talk about this. So basically, I believe it's, uh, the issue is mixed. It's coming from the top of the state level and also on the local level. There is no, I mean, space for all those ordinary, regular citizens to act in, in regard to, to stop this kind of things. Thank you, Selma. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to uh, have to wrap, uh, wrap the seminar up. I was um, told that we need to uh, finish at 10.30 sharp, and I know that we're already couple minutes, um, it's already a couple of minutes past uh, 10.30. And I know there are a lot of uh, you in the audience that have more, uh, more questions, but perhaps uh, you could catch one of the panelists now when we finish and, and ask them that question. I know Mark has to leave, but the rest of you, I think, are sticking around for a little while. Uh, I would uh, like to direct a big thank you to our excellent panelists for, for being here today. It's been uh, very, very interesting uh, listening to you. Um, I would also like to say that, I mean, as, as you've heard today, um, the, the road to, uh, to uh, justice and the road to peace is, is uh, dwindling and, and it's specked with challenges uh, in different ways. Uh, and we've also heard that, you know, even when legal measures uh, are taken, there's a lot of other things that need to be in place in order to kind of lay a, lay a foundation for, um, for a peaceful future. Um, but as, as some of you have mentioned here today, accountability is still uh, one, one step towards that direction. And, and if not, at least uh, it's a step towards um, uh, creating dignity for, for survivors of grave international crimes. Uh, and we also heard that civil society uh, plays a crucial role in, in collecting evidence uh, and in pushing for, um, for um, accountability to come in place. So um, Civil Rights Defenders is going to keep using universal jurisdiction in Sweden uh, as a tool to, um, to hold perpetrators for grave international crimes uh, accountable. Uh, we're going to keep doing that in the context of Syria, but we're also going to expand and try to do the same in, in other regions where we're working. Um, and. Um, we also want to keep a conversation going uh, around the importance of accountability. So uh, hopefully we're going to be organizing more seminars like this and hope all of you um, would want to come. Thank you for being here. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews. <laughs>